Hello and welcome back to Self Center, the podcast slash philosophy project that I am able to do and am doing with support from the Carbank Fellowship Program of Boston University, who I want to say again, thank you so much to. Um, as a reminder, I am Melissa and today's episode is going to be an extension of the last one, which was called Emotions and Self. Um, but is going to build off of what was discussed in order to take a slight turn or reroute into the concept of empathy. Um, I say extension mainly because there is an overlap between a lot of the concept concepts involved here, especially given um, the crossover between psychology and philosophy, which remains relevant to discussing how empathy um forms or is formed by or is overall some um, related concept to the idea of selfhood. Um, I plan on keeping the discussion mostly around empathy as a philosophical output rather than examining empathy through its role in relationships. Um, Like you might have heard when people refer to themselves as empaths or the classification of an empath and narcissist relationship. Um, I'm not here to talk about those types of situations, nor am I necessarily qualified to do so, but instead I want to invite a consideration of empathy and to question how a person's capacity to empathize directly relates to their selfhood or their concept of themselves. Um, Additionally, I want to challenge the notion that empathy is reserved for those outside of yourself um, when empathy for one's own self might actually be an extremely useful practice, especially if you were to think about self as something that is constantly evolving, um, which you might if you were to say that self is something that is created and is ever-changing with every decision you make. then when you look at past versions of yourselves, when you were making what you might think of as the wrong decisions or things like that, you might even see that person as an other. Um, your consciousness was still there, yes, but the self that was being produced by it is not the one in which you identify today. So you might have very little empathy for past versions of yourself when you're like, oh, why did I make that decision? Or how could I have done that? Or what was I doing in this situation? Um So I do want to sort of talk about how self-empathy can be useful and maybe even extremely helpful or life-saving in terms of building a strong and solid relationship with yourself, Um, which again sort of gets into the territory of what I was talking about at the end of the last episode with everyday psychological how you can build a better relationship with yourself. But Of course, I'm going to use philosophy as the grounding point for the majority of this discussion today, but that type of thing does become involved. Um, But back to the subject of empathy. Um, Empathy can be extended in many different ways through different types of therapy, different conceptions of the self, and even different conversations, different um, methods of getting to know someone, getting to know yourself, journaling, things like that. So today I'm going to use empathy as the grounding point of the discussion, but 
that does oscillate out to touch on subjects like cognitive behavioral therapy, internal family systems therapy, the philosophical problem of other minds, the limitations of consciousness. Of course, um, this also means that we'll get to hear interviews, personal experiences, and these testimonials, I think, were especially powerful in this subject because of how personal it can be and how subjective it can be. Um, but that being said, I would love to introduce a few of the relevant concepts of the day so that we can get started on unpacking this relationship between empathy and the self. Um, first, um, I just Google search the word empathy just to get a starting point for the conversation um, that's going to evolve. Um so I promise I did actually do a lot of research and have put in the work to know what I'm talking about today. Um, but I am about to cite Wikipedia um, because the definition of empathy, according to them, is as follows. Um, empathy is the capacity to understand or feel what another person is experiencing from within their frame of reference. That is the capacity to place oneself in another's position. Um, and I think we probably all could have guessed the definition to be something similar to that, um, since that is conventionally the framework we use to talk about empathy and to dole it out in our personal conversations and relationships. Um, you know, placing ourselves in other people's shoes is a pretty, you know, common phenomenon that we use, um, you know, to govern even elementary school relationships and how we learn to relate to other people is through this sort of like imagined um, I don't know what the word is, imagined connection to them or imagined ability to experience exactly what they're experiencing. And through that, we're pretty much imagining ourselves and our consciousnesses in their shoes. Um, for example, if someone is experiencing, say, grief around me, I use my own experiences of grief or how I would imagine I would react in their situation in order to have empathy for them. Um, but to break that down further, um, I'm going to draw upon a concept from David Hume, who is a pretty well-known philosopher with some prestigious works out there. Um, and I also talked about him earlier with his idea of constant conjunction. Um, but another sort of concept from his writing that is relevant to today's discussion is his distinction between impressions and ideas. So impressions are taken directly from the senses, according to Hume. So right now, um, I have an impression of a desk, which is based on the desk at which um, I'm sitting right now. Um, and I perceive that via sight, via touch, via even hearing, via some combination of my five senses but it wouldn't even have to be a combination it would just be some sensory perception even if it was just sight if I saw it across the room um so later tonight when I'm in bed or at any point when I'm not at my desk I might have an idea of a desk but my idea that I'm able to have is because I have had the corresponding impression so an idea is not a sensory experience, but it is the result of a sensory experience, which explains by my idea of a desk might be ever so slightly different from yours or someone else's because our sensory impressions of desks, which is a collection of all the times we have seen or had some other sense of a desk, um, while they're likely to be similar since a desk is, you know, roughly defined as the same thing, they're not exactly the same um, because I would doubt that 
there's anyone on earth who I've seen the exact same number of desks as and the exact same desk. You know what I'm saying? Um, so according to Hume, then, we can only have ideas of things when we have already established impressions of them. Um, I couldn't say to a newborn baby who has only ever seen the inside of a hospital room in which they were born, um, I could not tell them what a desk is and have them understand it the same way I do, which is kind of a weird way for me to explain that actually. But basically that is the overarching impression. We can only have ideas of things when we've already established sensory impressions of them. Um, I couldn't explain to someone who has never seen the color blue what the color blue is. It sort of relies on some sensory experience of it in order to have a firm idea. So if Hume is correct, um, what I'm getting at with this, I know that was kind of a tangent, but what I'm getting at is that we can only have an idea of something if we have had the corresponding impression. So if we accept that, there arise some consequences for our capacity to have unlimited empathy towards all other people, especially given the definition of understanding someone's experience from their frame of reference. If we have never had the impression of their frame of reference, how could we have an idea of what they're going through? Um, Unfortunately, um, it seems a pretty sad fact that you and everyone you know has or will at some point go through a period of grief However, these happen at different times for different people, obviously. So say you have never experienced a loss, but your close friend suddenly is grieving, which is the same example I mentioned before. But imagine that I have no impression of grief. I've never experienced grief before. How could I have empathy for that person in any legitimate sense of understanding what they are going through? Um, Which, of course, is not to say that you cannot feel bad for someone who is having an experience other than your own. Um, And I think that, honestly, pity and sympathy should be allotted for anyone who you see going through a bad situation. But, And, of course, supporting them in any way you can. Um, But basically what I'm getting at here is that if Hume is right, this is a problematization for your ability to place yourself in any legitimate frame of reference to the friend to whom you're trying to extend empathy. So the conclusion here might just be that Hume's idea is difficult to accept or is wrong or is disagreeable, um, which is fine, but his logic seems to make sense in other situations. Um, For example, like I said before, you can't imagine a color you haven't seen. So if we were to prove him wrong in situations of empathy, we would have to think up a way to explain how we could empathize with a situation we could we have not been in. Um, so how could I possibly do that? Um, so to even further problematize the idea of the human capacity for empathy when it comes to situations that we haven't been in, um, I'm going to draw upon another work, which is by philosopher Thomas Nagel, who taught at NYU for years, and he has a work entitled What Is It Like to Be a Bat? So to lay the framework for some of the ideas he brings up, it's useful to get acquainted with the term or the concept of the philosophical problem of other minds. And what this refers to is the difficulty of getting on the inside of any mind or consciousness that is not your own and believing that there is a consciousness inside of anyone who is not you when you cannot really prove that there could be. The only one you know for sure is your own. Um, 
like it's possible it it's unlikely i think so but it technically would be possible if i was to say i am the only consciousness everyone around me is just a robot designed to contribute to my experience um i think that would be um no pun intended a pretty self-centered way of approaching the world and not one that would you know be good to accept but in terms of empirically proving that there are consciousnesses beyond yours that are not just pre-programmed for your experience, it's difficult. So that would be sort of what we would get at with the philosophical problems of other minds. Um, and along with this, um, a few episodes back, I brought up Descartes' canonical line, I think, therefore I am, which is relevant to his philosophy in general, his mind-body dualism approach. Um But not only does he prove his own consciousness as real through his ability to think in this line, he also proves the exclusivity of consciousness. Um, I could not say with the same, you know, gusto or force, that person thinks, therefore that person is, because I cannot prove that they are actually thinking, Um, which is to say that we cannot transcend beyond the limitations of our own experience our own specific points of view. Um, We can engage in works of fiction, things of that nature, but even still we're operating within our own consciousness, absorbing and filtering ideas through our own individuality and our own individual lens, um, which are all unique, which I said in the emotions episode as well. Everything we do is, I think, a unique filter. Um, But anyway, not to get off topic. So Nagel, and what what is it like to be a bat? He takes this problem and he expands upon its application through a creative imagining from his own perspective what it would be like to be a bat. So he grants the assumption that a bat has what he calls, um, quote unquote, a subjective character of experience. So in order for this subjective character to exist for any organism, he says that there must be something that it is like to be that organism. So to repeat, there must be something that it is like to be something else. Um, So what this means is that something must exist for that organism that could not be attributed to a robot or to something that exhibits behaviors but perceives nothing. And what he basically means in saying that something must exist is that some experience, some subjectivity, some uniqueness must exist. So namely, this is the sort of foundation that we use for the assumption that others around us have consciousnesses. Um, And I would think that ethical behavior typically depends on this assumption, um, that other people around us have consciousnesses, have experiences. They might be different from our own and their reactions to things might be different from our own, but there is a consciousness and a person and a self and a being inside of every, you know, organism that we interact with, you know, we might think that a tree has a different sense of self than a person, but you know what I mean? There is some sort of ethical behavior um, and sense of self that we treat other consciousnesses with. So um, there comes a huge leap in assuming that from our acquaintances, our acquaintance with our own consciousness, we can make any claims about the experiences of others. Um, So even if we agree that there's consciousnesses all around us, 
it is another leap to make to assume that all those consciousnesses look like and mimic our own. Um, so the following is a long quote from Nagel's work, um, but one I feel encapsulates the crux of his argument as I'm using it for my purposes today. And again, Nagel and his work is doing a an imagining of what it would be like to be a bat and whether it would be possible for him to ever imagine what it would be like to be a bat. And so I'm going to use this as sort of a, a jumping off point for his argument. Okay, so the quote goes as follows. Our own experience provides the basic material for our imagination, whose range is therefore limited. It will not help to try to imagine that one has webbing on one's arms, which enables one to fly around at dusk and dawn, catching insects in one's mouth, that one has very poor vision and perceives the surrounding world by a system of reflected high-frequency sound signals, and that one spends the day hanging upside down by one's feet in an attic, Insofar as I can imagine this, which is not very far, it tells me only what it would be like for me to behave as a bat behaves. But that is not the question. I want to know what it is like for a bat to be a bat. Okay, so that quote expresses the same frustration that we got with Hume's impression versus idea distinction, which is that we simply cannot transcend our experience. So Nagel paints an even bleaker yet very, I think, real and very legitimate image of the limitations of empathy through his description that even if we were to behave in every way that the bat behaved, shadow the bat, do everything that it did, we would still not know what it is like for that bat to have that experience. We could only know what it was like for us as individuals to have the same experience. So the same might apply for things like trying to empathize with your grieving friend. Um, I can imagine myself in grief based off the familiarity I have with grief as a sensation. Um, I can place myself in their shoes insofar as I could say they lost this person to their life. What would it be like if I lost someone in that position in my life? But I can never legitimately or truly know what it is like for them to be inside their consciousness, inside their set of exact unique experiences, and then to be in grief, because I cannot know what it is like to be them in that sense at all. So as we are sort of running face first into this wall about ever having the ability to extend empathy to others, um, I want to sort of reroute in terms of how we would be able to extend empathy to ourselves and I'm hoping that by walking through a channel of selfhood and understanding how our selfhood persists through time and how empathy can be extended within the self, but across variations and across time and across decisions and whatever you want to call it. Um, so I'm hoping that through establishing the possibility of self-empathy, we could work on establishing outward empathy and how we could possibly have it in any legitimate way, because personally i would not want to live in a world without empathy i think empathy is pretty much the basis for many of the good things and many of the helpful things that are happening in the world um and i think without empathy well i think there are a lot of people who act very apathetically in the worlds to begin with but i think that without people fighting and advocating for empathy 
we would lose a lot of the progress that we are making. So it is, you know, important to me personally to sort of come up with some way that empathy can be extended outside of the self, um, which is getting into more, you know, like political, not necessarily psychological self territory. But okay, so to get back, we are going to talk about proving empathy as we can extend empathy to the self. So John Locke has a philosophy of personal identity and he has done quite a lot of work in terms of determining how we can know that things are self-same to themselves, um, how we can wake up every day knowing that we are the same person. What this means is that he has sort of come up with a framework for assigning continued identity to things throughout time and across changes. And this is similar to what I talked about in the career episode, um, the Aristotle philosophy of change in which a subject persists through a transition of contraries, um, not to reduce the entire scope of Locke's philosophy, um, but rather to just include what's relevant to this topic, he ultimately claims that through memory, personal identity can be extended. Now, it is not super difficult to poke holes in this by pointing out memory as an unreliable or unstable source in which to ground identity, which is such a heavy and important and consequential thing. For example, um, Locke points out potential objections in his papers such as is a person not responsible for any things they might do when drunk that they wouldn't remember um like could you not punish a person for you know drunk driving are they not responsible for you know maybe extremely consequential and extremely horrible things that happen when they are so most people, or at least a lot of people, would likely hesitate to accept that memory is necessary for identity or is the end-all, be-all grounds for identity. And I think that's very valid. We could also say, like, there are animals which have extremely small spans of memory and extremely short-term memories. Um, but would you say that, like, say there's a fish which has a six-day memory span and then when they're alive on day seven... Are they a completely new entity because they don't have the memory of things they've done? Um, and so a lot of people would likely hesitate to say that every, you know, six or seven days, this said fish is having a rebirth, but you would have to come up with some other way then to ground their identity because grounding it in physical is also, um, you know, kind of easy to poke holes in. For example, like someone gets a heart transplant, are they... A new person say that someone was able to transplant every organ in their body somehow and then so they would be completely remade from a new body that was aesthetically different that was um you know in ingredients different but they they remember who they were before and they have that same consciousness so would they still be the same person you would probably think that yes so then you would say that identity is grounded in consciousness, but if my consciousness was to be implanted into someone else, someone else's body, say, would that person be me? It's, you know, it's tricky. So what I'm getting at here is 
that although memory is unstable, it seems like a pretty decent foundation considering there's problems with all of them. And John Locke is also, you know, self-aware of the ways in which this might be problematic. So he claims that identity can be applied to things you might not remember if you are able to attribute those things to yourself. So that would mean including things like what you pay the consequences for or things you are told that you did or things that you find out through, you know, video or picture that you did, etc. Say you don't remember what you did when you were drunk, but through the fact that there's a friend that you have who's mad at you the next day, you can presume you did X thing wrong or something wrong in general, and you can apply that phenomenon to yourself, understand it and take accountability for it, um, you know, and then make it up to that friend and move on. So it's definitely still somewhat of a rocky basis to some people, but just for the sake of the next topic I want to enter and not spend the whole, you know, discussion trying to figure out the basis of identity, um, let's say that we can remember for the most part at least the most formative experiences we have had or they are repressed somewhere within our body. We're, you know, aware of them somehow, which is to draw upon the emotional thing where we are aware of our experiences somehow, even if we're not manifestly aware of them, they are latently existing within our body. And what I mean by they is the key components to our personalities and more more broadly ourselves. Um, so although we can remember or can understand these events that happened, um, and this applies to events, moments, days, whatever they might be, we might not be able to understand our behaviors, which is to say that even though we have direct access to the frames of reference we were in as ourselves when we had such days, um, by virtue of us being ourselves and being within the same consciousness, things can still get fuzzy when we take our most modern, most matured, most adult minds and try to place those on top of our younger selves or our differently abled selves in different past situations. Um, So the issue isn't usually so much ascribing events or behaviors to yourself, but rather understanding why you behaved the way you did. So it's not about, did I do that? It's about why did I do that? I think in terms of self-empathy. And I'm sure we all, you know, have things we've done that we wish we did not do or that we wish we did differently or that we wish we could repeat to do again and, you know, make modifications. Um, But the question now is if I myself am the one who did that behavior, albeit in a different time frame or in a different, you know, circumstance, how could I also be the one who now critiques that behavior? Is it because my modern self is the one who has had to reap the consequences of those actions, has had to make peace with those actions. So how could that self be different from the self who did it? This is also where I would like to bring up a way of attempted access to the self that is not only quite popular, but also I personally think it to be extremely valuable. And I am talking about therapy. Yay. Um, The main thrust of me talking about these therapies today is to maintain focus on my original questions of selfhood. 
So through therapy, are we accessing an authentic self, which has become buried under layers of social pressures and repressed traumas? Or are we instead giving ourselves the coping mechanisms and advancing our processes of feeling so that we can build and construct our best selves? And empathy is relevant here in terms of how our self on any given day relates to our self on any other given day. So when I say go to therapy and I'm talking about something that happened to me when I was in third grade, how can I, how is that still being carried with me and how has that persisted across time? If not even memory, if, is there any other basis in which it is grounded and how does that ability to have empathy and ability to have understanding and peace and grace for that past version of myself, how does that contribute to who I am today? Is it an innate thing that I was I was just built to have that have that experience and now I'm built to just carry that experience with me? Or is it more that I can either forgo that past experience or it has to be built into what I'm constructing now? So in order to do this, um, I spoke to Charlotte, who has experience with cognitive behavioral therapy, and we talked about that therapy specifically um, and how it emphasizes empathy in its own way. Um, but it, of course, is not even close to the only type of therapy. And all different types of therapy use, you know, different avenues of connecting to the self. But I know CBT is one of the most popular um, kinds of therapy. So that is what the rest of this episode focuses on. Um, And so the term CBT, which you'll hear, refers to cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay, so um, CBT, from how I understand it, targets thinking patterns and it focuses on deconstructing and like negative thinking patterns or compulsions um and building healthy thinking patterns and like systems of logic in their place and so that is done by getting to the bottom of a system of thought if that makes sense and identifying what is happening that is making you more upset or like putting you in a further place of harm um like basically deconstructing that idea um or like deflating that system seeing how it's like not productive or why it's wrong and then instead looking to a new system of thinking and being like it would be a lot more productive for me to think this way so like an example is like for myself as a person who has anxiety I'll just give like a small example um like let's say I don't hear back from my friend for like my friend never texts me back and I like spiral and I think like the silence is like oh like they they are mad at me like they're abandoning me like I must have done something wrong and like that's a harmful system of logic and system of thinking because it just puts me in a place where I'm anxious and worried um so cbt would be like okay why are you feeling anxious why are you feeling worried and maybe the answer to that would be like it's really important to me that my friends reply to me on time or that people are open in their communication with me um or maybe it's like i really struggle with being alone i don't like having to deal with these spaces between communication with different people 
Um, and so you like identify why you're having like the negative thought pattern and then you can kind of like use affirmations and logic to be like okay I know that this doesn't mean that my friend hates me like the fact that they didn't respond to my text like it's not the end of the world like alone time is a time where like I can get in touch with myself and like take care of me which is really exciting and so from there you kind of build this new frame of thinking which is that like if you don't hear back like you don't hear back and that's okay like now you have time to yourself to like do fun things for you um and that's so much healthier and like more productive and beneficial than just like spiraling and feeling shitty um so it's a lot of that it's a lot of like active work to understand the root cause of like unhealthy systems of logic and thinking um kind of deflating them showing your brain why they're wrong or untrue and then building something healthier in their place um they also can help with like interactions with other people um and a lot of cbt in general is very like strategy based so for myself it involved literally like a lot of like mapping out like physically mapping things out like my therapist and I used to like draw diagrams together or like pictures or we would make lists um or she would make me like list different strategies and it was like if I was going to interact with this person and we really don't have a good relationship like what are some phrases I can think of that would be good things to say to them to make our interactions like less intense or like less scary for me um so it truly is just like a lot of strategizing and it's meant to get you to a place where the things like the physical sensations the emotions like the social interactions um the triggers um that used to like really set you off and put you into like a really negative tailspin um mentally won't have that effect on you anymore and you'll have kind of like these new structures of thinking to be like this isn't my fault like I am safe I am okay just because this person is doing something negative to me doesn't mean that I've done anything wrong and that I have to like have a bad day now like the hope is that through CBT you can weather difficult emotions um and get through difficult experiences and difficult interactions with hard relationships that in a way that it won't ruin your day and it won't debilitate you um, and you'll be able to cope in a healthy way with it. It also for that reason like involves a lot of mindfulness and getting really good at mindfulness and being able to identify physical reactions in your body of like okay like when I'm anxious like I feel dizzy or like my heart starts to race and like being able to note that and be like okay if I'm feeling these things I need to go be alone for a while or like I need to take a run like um stuff like that so given that model of CBT which I think you've explained very well um how would you say empathy could be encouraged for the self because I think CBT views the self as more of a cohesive unit and works on integrating all the different parts of yourself. Um, Like you said, the anxious part of yourself maybe with 
the more socially presentable um, quote-unquote part of yourself. So how would you say that looking back on the past and looking towards the future, CBT encourages a sense of empathy across that? So CBT like almost demands that you learn how to have empathy for yourself because so much of negative thought patterns and like um like illogical systems of thinking depend on like ideas and moods that are like harmful towards oneself so like with a lot of people who have depression and anxiety I feel like a big symptom of both of those um illnesses is like self-blame or like self-loathing or um self-pity like just kind of putting yourself in a place where you're blaming yourself for everything or you're taking on all this anger like you have to have like empathy for yourself to kind of dispel those negative emotions if that makes sense like you need to like be able to be like I did the best I could and that's enough or like I deserve rest or like this person's bad attitude has nothing to do with me and like I'm not gonna let it get to me like that sort of empathy is like essential and I think it is encouraged through mind mindfulness because the more mindful you become of your own body and noticing like these situations really stress me out like these actions really make me upset like when I'm angry my body does this my mind does this then you can kind of like once you really like hone that in yourself and you re-enter the world you can kind of pick up on similar themes and other people like if you know that being in like a crowded work environment makes you really stressed and you see your boss in a crowded work environment you can go oh they're probably really stressed that's probably why they just chewed me out like it has nothing to do with me they're just really stressed um so mindfulness I think just really helps encourage that because you can't be mindful and not be empathetic I feel like I feel like they really really go hand in hand um and also the idea of like reparenting is a really big thing that comes up is like how would you care for a small child (laughs) um like if you were a small child who was upset like how would you talk to yourself how would you talk to a friend like how would you talk to a loved one like being very conscious again this is mindfulness but becoming like very conscious of like the tone that you talk to yourself in um the situations that you put yourself in like the people you surround yourself with you almost it almost demands that you like step outside of yourself a little bit and you look at yourself within a situation like objectively um because that gives you the empathy or the ability to have empathy and be like this was a really hard situation for all of these reasons and like I did the best I could it's not my fault that it didn't go the way I wanted it to I'm gonna go take care of myself now by like taking a bath um and yeah I yeah that's another big piece of it actually is self-care I think especially like aftercare uh of like if you experience something difficult instead of like wallowing in self-pity or being angry at yourself um having the maturity and like the patience to be like that was hard my body needs to rest now or like I need a release or like I need to go have a laugh with some friends 
I need to go on a crazy adventure, like, just, which again is a form of mindfulness, um, but mindfulness, self-care, empathy, I feel like they're all points of the same circle, um, they all kind of feed into one another, so the more you get better at one, the more the other also, the more the others also improve, if that makes sense, like, the more empathetic you are towards yourself, the better you will be at doing self-care, um, the more you do self-care, the more you'll be mindful of, like, your body and your mind and your moods, um, so I think, yeah, the best way to encourage empathy in the CBT model is to just really help people step outside of themselves and look at them, themselves from, like, a third-party perspective, um, in a way that is, like, filled with, like, compassion and care, um, yeah, I hope that makes sense. (laughs) So I want to obviously first say thank you so much to Charlotte for her help in this episode and the pretty enlightening and really thorough responses that we got, um, in terms of the discussion of CBT as it relates to the philosophical discussion of empathy, um, and I know there are many different, um, philosophical approaches to empathy, and we're only taking one right now, but there are really a lot of different deep dives that one could take. Um, But focusing on what we learned through CBT and empathy, um, and in relation to my initial question of whether the self is created or um, innate to a person, um, I think that CBT probably aligns more with the ideology that there is some sort of innate being, or at least that you have some inclinations and your socialization can either guide you towards or away from those things. Um, More specifically, CBT might believe that other socialization experiences have led you away from your authentic self and through this sort of therapy, you're led back to it, Um, which doesn't necessarily answer the question of how yourself can be in multiple roles or be fulfilling multiple positions. Beyond that, it seems to suggest that the self is sort of a splintered, multifaceted um, soul or being within the body, Um, especially in the discussion that we were just having where you're working with yourself in an attempt to sort of like have a cohesive cooperation between your thoughts and actions and unpack the patterns that you might do but not understand or the things you might understand but not be able to do. Um, and identifying repressed emotions, identifying behavioral patterns. Um, And it also works with um, a sort of public socialization tactic. For example, um, through CBT, you might be able to more properly or more fulfillingly, satisfactorily present yourself to the public and integrate yourself into your world in a way that aligns with how you might feel inside. Um, So I think that this idea of the self as splintered is really relevant for this type of therapy um, because you are acting as both the talker and the recipient of your your speech. When you sit in therapy and you talk, um, you are talking to your therapist and you're also talking to yourself and sort of confronting things aloud. Um, So you might also think that CBT is just sort of like a physical manifestation of conversations that are happening within you, but that don't necessarily have the tools to be had um, without being vocalized or the tools to be fixed without being vocalized. Um, And so then, of course, there's a therapist sort of just in the position of 
I don't know, mediating this discussion and sort of guiding you on the path back to yourself or toward a new version of yourself. Um, so I think that in this ideology, um, selfhood is sort of a sum of parts, a sum of experiences. Um, and it is sort of both predetermined and forged because you do have these predetermined, I guess, value systems within yourself, um, according to the CBT model. And I think you could unpack that further and say that maybe these values are passed down and socialized into you by your childhood and by your early life and by the role models that you have um, as a young person. And I think that maybe through CBT, you can either um, choose to avoid those or choose to return to those. Um, I think it definitely depends on, you know, the specific circumstances of the person. But I think that CBT, while personally I believe it aligns more with a model of um, the self as an innate being that you have to, you know, work to align yourself with, it could also um, be the gateway to you, like, forging a new self and getting the tools to sort of recognize maybe for the first time this innate part of yourself. Um, so, yeah, I think that's something really important that this episode showed and that most of the episodes have showed is that self is really difficult to pin down in any one locale and it is like spread through many different you know dimensions of the self and I think splintered is the best word that I can think of to use um so yeah this was the empathy and self episode um thank you so much for listening and I will see you next time